Okay, so I was going to do notes for this chapter, but I'm a little bit tired, so I'm just going to read it and then do a summary notes for my own interest. Uh, this is chapter five in environmental organic chemistry. We're going to be talking about earth systems and compartments. And I apologize if I put some ads in here. It was a long week. So running a YouTube channel that I really like. It helps me study. So a major pursuit of environmental organic chemistry is to make optimal use of available information, such as chemical concentration data, to understand the behavior of chemicals in specific environments and then extend this knowledge to anticipate the behavior of other chemicals in different environments. The diversity of natural systems and the continuously growing number of organic compounds with variable properties dictate the need for a tunable framework that allows us to organize and understand chemical concentration data as a function of space and time. In this book, we are going to use mass balance models to interpret such data quantitatively. These models describe the combined influence of chemical inputs and outputs on the total amount of a compound in a specific compartment. They require two kinds of information properties of the environmental compartments that affect chemical behaviors within those spatially defined locations, and the chemicals' physiochemical characteristics that determine the equilibria and dynamics of the various processes acting on those chemicals. These processes include chemical and biological transformations like hydrolysis, photolysis, and biodegradation, phase transfers like air-water exchange absorption, and transport phenomena like advection by currents and diffusive mixing. Um, so we're going to go through some mathematical tools here, but I don't necessarily like the way that these authors do the math, so I'm going to do that as a separate section. So for this, we're going to use compartment to denote a physical part of the environment, like the global atmosphere, a lake, or soil of agricultural fields. And these examples may suggest a focus on three phases, as in gas, liquid, and solid, but this can be misleading. So for example, the atmosphere is not just composed of gases, but also contains suspended liquids and solids. Likewise, one finds suspended solids in lakes and gaseous pore space in soil. For modeling of global scale problems, relevant environmental compartments are the atmosphere, the ocean and their sediments, and the soil and its groundwater. Often we're more concerned with local problems, for which non-global compartments such as a particular lake, its sediment and inlets and outlets are relevant. Depending on the property of the compound under its consideration, some local compartments may be important, whereas others may not. For example, in order to quantify the fate of chemicals discharged to a lake, the water column may be the only relevant compartment for some chemicals, whereas inclusion of the sediment bed may be necessary for other compounds. So just a quick review, we've got definitions of systems and compartments. A compartment is a part of the physical environment that's defined by a spatial boundary that distinguishes it from the rest of the world. We have things like atmosphere, lake sediments, Atlantic Ocean, soil, Oglala, Aquifer. A system is used in mathematical modeling to identify the part of the world that is the object of the model. Systems can include one or more physical compartments and or non-physical parts of the world, like an economy. A phase is the physical aggregation state of gaseous liquid or solid of a homogeneous material. 
For example, benzene and water are two liquid phases, but benzene dissolved in water is a single phase. The medium is the carrier or environment in which a phase exists. An example would be a calcium carbonate particle suspended in the ocean is a solid phase in the seawater medium. Matrix is similar to and sometimes interchangeable with the term medium. It's primarily used if the surroundings are heterogeneous. So for example, a calcium carbonate shell found in a soil consisting of solids coated with aqueous films and including pore spaces filled with gases is a solid phase in the soil matrix. So we're going to talk about three major global compartments, atmosphere, ocean, and pedosphere, which is primarily solid components. There are also smaller compartments discussed within global systems for which they're related. So for example, lakes and rivers are discussed in the ocean section, whereas groundwater is treated in the soil section. And finally, we mentioned global biota, the compartment. Okay, so starting with the atmosphere. <clears throat> the atmosphere is the only compartment that spreads over the globe whole surface. Global scale transport of chemicals, both vertically and horizontally, is relatively fast and takes from weeks to years compared to transport in other compartments like ocean or soils, which take millennia, or can take millennia. Therefore, for many chemicals, transport in the atmosphere is the most important mechanism for global distribution. However, the atmosphere does not usually function as the major reservoir of man-made chemicals. Notable exceptions are persistent volatile chemicals like chlorofluoromethanes or freons. In terms of its internal structure, the atmosphere is the least complex global compartment. In the vertical direction, the troposphere and stratosphere are the most important layers when modeling chemical fate. The troposphere is the lowest layer, which includes 80% of the atmospheric mass and where most of the weather phenomena occur. A narrow layer called the tropopause separates the troposphere from the stratosphere and is characterized by a vertical temperature minimum and a sign change in the temperature gradient. The altitude of the tropopause occurs between 7 kilometers in the polar regions and 17 kilometers in the equator, but these heights vary seasonally. The upper boundary of the stratosphere, the stratopause, lies at a height of about 50 kilometers. Here, the vertical temperature gradient again changes sign. The combined troposphere and stratosphere contain nearly 100% of the atmospheric mass. Air pressure and density in the troposphere. In the troposphere, the total mean air pressure, P, decreases exponentially with height, H. So the P of H equals P of H equals 0, E raised negative H over L, where L is 8,000 meters. So the reason this is important is because we have an atmosphere divided into horizontal layers, troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, etc., and those are confined by heights where the temperature gradient changes sign. That happens at the tropopause and the stratopause. Under special weather conditions, temperature in the troposphere increases with height. Such conditions called inversions are zones of suppressed vertical mixing. This is our smoke smog and fog issues. A partial pressure to concentration. So unit conversions for methane in the atmosphere. 
The abundance of a trace molecule I in the air, for example, methane or CH4, is often given in partial pressure or PI, for example, in bars of mercury, or in relative partial pressure, PI over P, for example, parts per million by volume, because this latter number remains approximately constant as the particular air parcel changes altitude. Using the ideal gas law, the concentration in mole per liter, C sub I, or the number of molecules per centimeters cubed can be calculated as P sub IV equals XI PV, which equals X sub I RT, which can be concentration sub I equals X sub I over V, which equals X sub I times P over RT times mole per liter, which is molecules per volume, or C sub I N A where R is the ideal gas constant, which equals 0.083145 liter bar mole, negative 1K negative 1, which P is the total pressure, or P sub I bar, which is the partial pressure of molecule I. X sub I is mole fraction of the molecule in I. T of K is the absolute temperature. N sub A is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd molecules per mole, which is Avogadro's number. So for example, we consider air containing one parts per million volume of methane at two heights above the ground, 0 meters and 10,000 meters, where the air temperatures are 293K and 223K respectively. At 0 meter altitude, pressure 10 to the negative 6 bar Ci is 4.1 times 10 to the negative 8 mole per liter, or 2.5 times 10 to the 16 molecules per liter. At 10,000 meters, we have P equals 1 bar by exponent negative 10,000 over 8,000, because remember that's the difference in height, which is equal to 0.29 bar. P sub I then becomes 10 to the negative 6, or P equals 0.29 times 10 to the negative 6 bar. Concentration then becomes 1.6 times 10 to the negative 8 mole per liter, or 9.4 times 10 to the 15 molecules per liter. So at 10,000 meter altitude, the total pressure is 29% of the pressure at sea level, but due to the temperature decrease, the number of methane molecules per volume is 38% of the number at sea level. So a similar approximation can be used for air density. It exponentially decreases with height from its value for dry air at sea level, and this exponential approximation should not be extrapolated into the stratosphere and beyond since the length scale L increases with H. That is, the exponential curve of our equation is only a first approximation. So all of us have experienced the wild caprices of weather. We all know that mixing in the atmosphere can be irregular and even chaotic and difficult to forecast beyond a couple of days. Nonetheless, atmospheric mixing exhibits some general patterns when data are arranged over space and time. In the following discussion, we distinguish between vertical and horizontal mixing. Vertical mixing over the total height of the troposphere is often fairly fast, hours to a few days. An exception occurs during inversions or special weather situations where a layer of cold air lies underneath a layer of warm air, causing a strong vertical density gradient and a significant reduction in vertical air exchange. 
Likewise, mixing across the tropopause, another thermally stratified layer, is slow compared to vertical mixing within the troposphere. Trans-tropopause transport mainly occurs in the spring and the autumn when large storms in the troposphere temporarily destroy the vertical density gradient in the tropopause. So that's interesting. Spring and autumn is the turnover times, not just for thermal turnover, but also for physic atmospheric, physical turnover. Um, so we, we normally think of spring and autumn as a thermal transition like in lakes, right? Because the water heats up and then you have your change in soil odor uh, contact, albedo, um, that changes the temperature but it also changes vertical density gradient in the air. So at these times, significant volumes of air are exchanged between the troposphere and stratosphere, and due to the generally minimal mixing across the tropopause, natural compounds produced in the stratosphere like ozone or man-made chemicals like freon that do not degrade in the troposphere and hence are transported across the tropopause can remain in the stratosphere for several years. As a result, the stratosphere serves as a significant storage compartment for these compounds. On a local scale, horizontal transport and mixing is as variable as the local wind field and impossible to predict over time scales larger than a few days. However, on a global scale, distinct horizontal wind patterns exist that are linked to the fact that solar radiation at high latitudes is smaller than at low latitudes. To reach a local thermal energy balance everywhere on the globe, heat must be transported from the surplus areas at low latitudes to the deficit areas at high latitudes. About half of the thermal energy flux is provided by ocean currents and the other half by atmospheric flow. In the atmosphere, thermal energy is transported both as sensible heat or warm air and as latent heat or moist air. The sensible heat mechanism causes warm air at low latitudes to rise to the upper troposphere where it flows to higher latitudes. The rising warm air is replaced by cooler and more dense air flowing through the lower troposphere from higher latitudes. At the same time, after some time, the upper air loses much of its extra heat and sinks down again. These flow patterns create three distinct circulation cells in each hemisphere with neighboring cells circulating in opposite directions. These are the Hadley, Farrell, and Polar cells. The boundaries between the circulation cells, especially at the equator, are zones where air flows in a north-south direction, where air flows in north-south directions are inhibited. These are what's called the equatorial doldrums uh, and created calms from sailors that I guess sailors were afraid of. So here we've got a nice graphic. You can see the Hadley cell has, uh, is near the equator. It's much larger than a feral cell and it creates a subtropical jet at basically anything below 30 degrees north. From 60 to 30, you have a feral cell, which is an interaction between a subtropical jet and a polar jet, uh, and that's in a counter, it's in a clockwise direction. And then you have a tropopause, which is above 60 degrees north, and that's a polar cell that's interacting with the polar jet of a feral cell towards the North Pole, and it goes in a counterclockwise direction. So the polar easterlies is at our northernmost point, the westerlies flow clockwise, the northeast trade winds uh, flow towards the south, the southeast trade winds flow towards the north, 
the westerlies near Antarctica at 30 degrees south. I guess these are some of the most dangerous currents in the world, the westerlies of the Southern Ocean. Uh, and then below 60 degrees south, we have the polar easterlies. So um, we have some vertical motion corresponding to surface winds. In both hemispheres, large differences in surface heating by sunlight from the equator to the poles leads to three circulation cells of rising warm air and descending cold air, Hadley, Farrell, and polar cells. Air pressure is low and cloud formation high where rising air meets another circulation cell. The boundaries between the circulation cells, especially at the equator, are zones where north-south transport is limited. So you can see where the Earth's rotation deflects the air flow from the surface onto a latitudinal direction. This is where you get your east-west trade winds. Concentrations of chemicals in the atmosphere are commonly given in units of parts per million by volume, which is equivalent to relative partial pressure. This number can be converted to a mass per volume using the ideal gas law, which we've already discussed. And these major gases are rather homogeneous in concentration throughout the atmosphere. In addition, water vapor typically contributes a few percent to the total atmospheric gas pressure. For instance, at the surface, at 100% relative humidity and 20 degrees C, water vapor pressure concentration, whoops, water vapor concentration is about 17.3 milligrams per liter, corresponding to a relative partial pressure of 2.3% at 30 degrees C and 100% humidity. Concentration is at 30.3 milligrams per liter with a partial pressure of 4.2%. Additionally, numerous minor carbon-containing compounds occur in the atmosphere, such as CO2, CO, CH4, CCl2, F2, and reactive compounds, including hydrogen peroxide, ozone, hydroxyl radical, nitrogen oxides, and nitric acid. The atmosphere also contains suspended aerosols at concentrations of about 1 to 100 micrograms per meter cubed, and the residence times of these aerosols are typically between 1 and 10 days, depending on size. The main removal mechanism is precipitation, or wet deposition, and because storms are spatially and temporally variably, whoops, temporally variable, aerosols concentrations vary in space and time. In arid areas, dry deposition of aerosols can become important, and this removal mechanism occurs with vertical velocities between 0.1 and 10 centimeters per second. Since aerosols may have acids like nitric and bases like ammonia, they exhibit pH values ranging from about 2 for acid deposition to about 8, which is sea spray. In chapters 9 and 15, we'll see how pH affects wet deposition of certain organic compounds. Aerosols also include substantial organic material, and some of this organic matter is derived from solids such as fine soil particles, pollen, or soot blown off the surface of the earth. These organic components of aerosols are referred to as primary, but much of the aerosol organic content is formed after organic vapors in the atmosphere are oxidized and condensed to form more particulate matter. This aerosol organic content is referred to as secondary. As discussed in chapter 15, these organic components are important for accumulating organic pollutants like PAHs, leading to long-range transport and ultimate removal of these compounds from the atmosphere. So remember primary aerosol components, we have pollen, we have sea spray, we have soot. 
These arise directly from the Earth's surface, whereas secondary components are formed in the atmosphere from combinations of chemicals that then precipitate down to the Earth. And they're really quite pretty. So there's some electron micrographs on uh, page 130. Uh, and they're really, they're really lovely. Obviously, crystallizations of PAHs or BTECs, um, or probably NOx and SOx would be more likely, or maybe not as pretty, but pretty interesting. Surface waters. So the ocean and global water cycle. The largest aquatic compartment on Earth by volume is the ocean, and this largest freshwater compartment is the polar ice caps followed by groundwater. Lakes and rivers are negligible in terms of global water reservoirs, but they can be important as storage and transport media for organic chemicals as they're more directly exposed to man-made chemicals. The mean depth of the ocean, the mean depth of the ocean, that is the ocean volume divided by its surface area, is about 3,800 meters. And at such a depth, the total pressure would be about 400 bar, and the seawater temperature would only be between zero and four degrees C. In contrast, combined continental surface waters and lakes and rivers were evenly spread out over part of the globe as occupied by land, it would have a mean depth of less than two meters. Performing that same calculation for groundwater and the depth would be about 60 meters. So water continuously cycles from the ocean into the atmosphere via different pathways back to the ocean. The mean flow rates between the different aquatic reservoirs are listed in the lower part of table 5.3 and illustrated in 5.4. So essentially you have a lovely picture where precipitation rains into the ocean and then that evaporates moving through vapor transport to more precipitation. And then over land you have transpiration and from plants leading to vapor transport and precipitation and you have evaporation from surface waters leading to precipitation. And that precipitation leads to surface runoff, and that surface runoff then populates ocean. And then you also have a percolation factor, percolation path, that then moves through the land under groundwater flow to return to the ocean. So the mean resident time of ocean water with respect to evaporation is about 3,300 years. A long time. About 9% of that makes it to the continents and eventually flows back to the ocean via rivers or subsurface flow. While the evaporating water is fairly pure, upon rejoining the ocean it may carry organic chemicals accumulated from the atmosphere or the continents. The yearly runoff from the continents equals about 0.45% per year of liquid water stored, mostly as groundwater. Mean residence time of water on land is 220 years. That's kind of interesting, right? Like if we think about all the contaminants that we've been pumping into the water over the past 50 years, um, the reason that we still have clean water is because we have a mean residence time of 220 years. So if we think about our pollution habits now, the reason that we can have those habits is because we haven't gone through all of our surface waters yet. Well, we might have in some specific locations. Um, for
For example, sometimes it looks like if we disregard groundwater, the mean resident time of continental surface water with respect to runoff to the ocean is just six years. So obviously we have some very big differences between um, continental reservoirs. So groundwater existing in deep strata that's been below the ground for several thousand years is much more likely to take its time returning back to the ocean. In turn, rainwater that does not infiltrate into soil or pass through a large lake may be back in the ocean within a week or less. So these calculations of mean residence time do not take into account the water stored in polar ice. The rates of freezing and melting of polar ice relative to the stock of ice are very low. And as we know from the history of the ice ages, ice volumes are not at a steady state over the short timescales of millennia. During the ice ages, this reservoir has been much larger, while presently we are experiencing a distinct shrinking of the polar ice mass. Although we don't further discuss the polar ice shields, the, the cryosphere, we do note that the cryosphere can be a significant long-term reservoir for certain organic pollutants. Ugh, humans. How frustrating. Can you and the, so the reason I'm saying that is because when you think of how short a time we've been pumping all these chemicals into the cryosphere, into the atmosphere. The only reason that we're still alive is because we die so quickly, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, in a couple thousand years, this is gonna be very different. I, one of the comments I get a lot at work is like, yeah, everything causes cancer, and yeah, you know, we haven't died yet, so we might as well keep doing what we're doing because, you know, I can turn on the tap and the water doesn't immediately light on fire or burn all my skin off. I mean, they don't use that language, but that's the implication, right, that if something was truly dangerous that, um, you know, you would just die. And I, and I can't help but think like, okay, because we're getting to the point where we're running out of dilution factors, right? I mean, we're running out of places to put this stuff. It's, it's all going to be similarly contaminated and the contamination concentrations are gonna be significant to actually cause skin burning or lung crushing or whatever. So I think that one of the best Sci-fi thoughts is the Threadfall. I don't know if, I haven't read these for a long time, but the Dragon Riders of Pern, where there's this like biological or atmospheric uh, event called Threadfall, which basically consumed everything living, like it just burned out the planet wherever it fell. I could easily see something like that developing because you just have these these overwhelming concentrations of chemicals in, in systems that lose their mixing value, right? So when thermal and when density dependent activities can no longer take place because we don't have polar ice caps anymore, right? We don't have a thermal gradient, uh, then yes, you would, you would be able to have these, these columns of air that were essentially stagnant um, and you could grow something in them, right? Because they're not moving. The, the cells would essentially stop because we wouldn't have polar, polar air coming in and governing some of our um, currents. But we're talking about oceans right now. So 
As for the atmosphere, the ocean can be vertically divided into different layers, a surface layer, an intermediate layer, and deep layers. Uh, and so we've got a lovely graphic here where we see surface water temperatures at the equator, and we see some intermediate water, and then we see the North Atlantic deep water and the Antarctic bottom water. And you can see the interactions between these two based off, or all of them, all four, based off of the thermal density gradients. But at surface waters several hundred meters deep, the ocean currents are driven by the global wind field, which in combination with the Coriolis effect arising from the Earth's rotation leads to the well-known surface currents like the Gulf Stream in the Northern Atlantic or the Kuroshio current in the Northern Pacific. I wonder if we get that here in Japan. At the water surface, the heating and cooling of the water column in combination with the turbulent energy supplied from the wind field produces a well-mixed surface layer whose depth varies with latitude and season. In summer, a seasonal surface layer of less than 100 meters typically forms, while in winter, a cooling erodes the temperature-induced density gradient or the thermocline. A layer forms to a depth of several hundred meters. Below the surface water, ocean circulation is driven by the density gradients caused by variation of temperature and salt content called the thermohaline circulation. And you have some wonderful examples here. It looks like Atlantic is the most salty water body, uh, with the Pacific as the least salty. And you have some seas, so the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea are at 40 PSU. Um, and then you've got, ooh, the Mono Lake in the USA is at 73. The Dead Sea is at 280. Um, Lake Asal in Djibouti is at 348, 388 at a 20 meter depth. And Don Juan Pond in, a, in Antarctica is at 442 practical salinity units. It's predominantly calcium chloride instead of sodium chloride. It's interesting. I wonder why it's calcium chloride. Um, salinity varies between the major oceans and is even more pronounced between the main ocean and smaller basins. A practical salinity unit is defined to be very close to a previous definition, which was total mass of dissolved salts in grams per one kilogram of seawater. Um, and in PSU units, a salinity of 35 roughly corresponds to a salinity of 35% in the old definition. Such salt content information is important for calculations involving solubilities and partition coefficients for organic chemicals. And we'll get to that in chapters 9 and 10. Sailors have felt the effects of surface ocean currents for centuries. In contrast, only in the last few decades could oceanographers draw a quantitative picture of how the ocean circulates below the surface. Where deep water is formed, where the water comes back to the surface, and how the major oceans are connected by deep and bottom water currents. Today, knowledge about the three-dimensional structure of ocean currents is extremely detailed, but the general picture is still reasonably well depicted by the conveyor belt model developed about 30 years ago. Compared to the atmosphere, the global ocean circulation is not only more difficult to observe, which explains why it took so long to understand, but also much more complex. The vertical stability of the water column depends not only on temperature, as in the atmosphere, but also on salinity, which is the main driver of such complexity. In fact, the reason why deep water is formed in the North Atlantic, 
and in the Arctic, Antarctic, but not in the North Pacific Ocean, is the relatively low salinity in the North Pacific. You love your. The rates of deep water formation in units of sverdrups, where 1 SV equals 10 to the 6 meter cubed per second, are estimated to be 15 to 20 SV for NADW, the North Atlantic deep water, and 5 to 10 SV for AABW, the Antarctic bottom water. The intermediate water shown above also forms in the Antarctic and contributes another 5 to 10 SV of flow into the Atlantic at mid-depth. Using these flow rates, the time scale for the global ocean circulation is between 500 and 1500 years. This rather long time explains why the deep ocean mainly acts as a sink for man-made compounds, since most of these chemicals have only been produced during the last 50 to 100 years. Either such compounds are carried to the deep ocean by the global circulation, or they're bound to particles that sink through the water column, or they repeatedly distill back and forth into the atmosphere moving forward. The first two mechanisms represent mostly a one-way transport, at least on a time scale of a few hundred years. In contrast, transport to the polar regions happens on a time scale of a year or less. Oh my gosh. What are we doing as humans? We are crazy. The chemical composition of seawater has long been studied. In 1884, the Scottish chemist William Dittmar, based on water samples taken during a scientific challenger expedition, found that the relative proportions of the major chemical constituents of seawater are nearly constant throughout all oceans. The composition of seawater is important for reactions such as nucleophilic substitution reactions with solutes like chloride, bromide, and for processes involving bicarbonate and carbonate as well as organic matter that affect reactive oxygen species such as singlet oxygen, O2, or HO radicals, just like blood. That's really cool. That's really cool. The pH of seawater is typically near 8, although this value can go up or down a few tenths of a pH unit in surface waters due to intense photosynthesis or heterotrophic respiration. This pH dependency can be understood by noting that protons are reactants during photosynthesis and they are products during respiration, as depicted by the stoichiometric expression using the red field ratio. So, let me read that again. pH dependency can be understood by noting that protons are reactants during photosynthesis and they are products during respiration. 106 CO2 plus 16 NO3 plus HPO4 plus 122 H2O plus 18 H yields C106H263O110N16P plus 138O2. And that is reversible. Deep seawater pH decreases from the surface pH near 8 down to about pH 7.5 as the water flows through the ocean. And remember, blood is from 7.35 to 7.45. Isn't that interesting? This pH change occurs because particulate organic matter continuously falls into the deeper layers from above, and some of this organic matter is oxidized, releasing CO2 and lowering the pH.
Dissolved oxygen in surface seawater is usually nearly equilibrated with the atmosphere. As a result, O2 concentrations are between 200 and 300 micromoles, depending on the water temperature and salinity. These concentrations locally increase or decrease because of photosynthesis or respiration. While most of the ocean has some dissolved oxygen, certain locations have been found to be anoxic. For example, seawater in the Cariaco Basin, north of Venezuela in the Caribbean Sea, is naturally anoxic below 400 meters all the way to the seafloor at 1,400 meters. Whoa. Unfortunately, large inputs of nutrients to certain parts of the ocean, for example, the dead zone located near the mouth of the Mississippi River in the northern Gulf of Mexico, are now causing unnaturally oxygen-depleted deep water. Wow. I wonder what makes it naturally anoxic. The seawater concentration of organic carbon that passes through a glass fiber filter, about one micrometer size cutoff, called dissolved organic carbon, or DOC, does not vary widely, almost always being near one milligram carbon per liter seawater. DOC concentrations are a little higher in surface water where phytoplankton are actively photosynthesizing organic matter, but DOC concentrations generally decrease with depth below the surface layer. The chemical composition of seawater DOC is quite different from that found in freshwaters, chiefly because land plants and marine phytoplankton synthesize very different, or different materials. Particulate organic carbon, defined as organic carbon that can be filtered from water, usually occurs at somewhat lower levels than DOC in seawater unless one is looking at a site with a phytoplankton bloom or at a coastal location with significant resuspended solids. In contrast to DOC values, substantial concentration variations occur for trace substances that serve as nutrients for photosynthetic organisms. For example, inorganic nitrogen species like nitrate, nitrite, and ammonia, and phosphate vary from undetectable concentrations up to micromolar levels. Lakes. Most of the liquid fresh water on Earth is found in lakes. More than 1 million lakes exist with an area larger than 0.1 kilometers squared, and in total, lakes cover an estimated area of about 2.8 million kilometers squared, or 2% of the land surface. The total lake volume is estimated to be 230,000 kilometers cubed, a little over half of it containing fresh water. Most lake water is concentrated in about 250 large lakes, including coastal lagoons, with a surface area larger than 500 kilometers squared. We have some 10 of the most famous lakes, um, the largest lakes ranked by volume, surface area, and depth. The largest is the Caspian Sea, and it represents 75% of the global saline lake volume. Lake Baikal is the largest of the freshwater lakes, containing nearly 20% of the total freshwater, and that's more than all the great Laurentian lakes combined. After the Caspian Sea, Lake Superior leads the area ranking, while Lake Baikal only ranks number 8. Australia has very few large lakes. Lake Eyre is its largest and subject to large area fluctuations. Subsurface or groundwater inflow and outflow is important for some lakes. The mean resident time of water in lakes is calculated by dividing the lake volume by the discharge rate. Calculated by dividing the lake volume by the discharge rate at the outlets. 
Typical values for lakes with volumes larger than 10 kilometers cubed lie between a few weeks to several tens of years. Lakes without surface or subsurface outlets are called terminal lakes. They keep their water balanced by evaporation, like the ocean. Terminal lakes are saline or develop into saline lakes. In contrast to the salinity of ocean water, the salt composition of saline lakes varies, varies greatly as it reflects the different geologies of the drainage areas where the dissolving rocks provide most of the salt. Although lakes are small compared to the ocean, they may be locally of great importance as a water resource. At the same time, small volume to shoreline ratios make lakes more vulnerable to man-made pollution. Flushing times of organic pollutants in lakes are of the same order as the mean residence time of the water itself. And importantly, such flushing may control the longevity of the organic contaminants in lake water, especially if the chemicals are persistent and do not absorb to particles. Mixing and stratification of lakes. In order to understand the processes controlling the fate of chemicals in lakes and to design effective water sampling strategies, we need to understand the phenomena that control mixing in the lakes. The seasonal change of vertical stratification in lakes is similar to that of the ocean. At its surface, mixing is mainly due to wind. Mixing in the horizontal direction is fairly fast, while mixing in the vertical direction, a layer called the thermocline, represents a bottleneck for vertical mixing. The thermocline is the depth zone where temperature strongly decreases, causing a density gradient that separates the surface water, or epilimnon, from the deep water called the hypolimnion. Thus, processes like air-water exchange only act directly on organic chemicals in a lake's epilimnon. As in the ocean, the thermocline depth undergoes a seasonal variation caused by the warming and cooling of the surface water and by the corresponding variation of the strength of the stratification of the water column. In lakes with a total depth of less than 100 or 150 meters, the thermocline depth may thus sink to the bottom of the lake, a process called total turnover. For lakes in the temperature climate zone, such turnover events commonly occur in the fall when the lake's surface water loses heat. Turnover sometimes occurs twice per year in the fall and the spring if a so-called inverse stratification or an ice cover develops. Inverse stratification results from the very peculiar density to temperature relationship of fresh water. In contrast to any other fluid, water reaches its maximum density not at its freezing point, but at 4 degrees C. Water with a salinity of more than 25 PSU does not have such a density anomaly. Thus, temperature-induced inverse stratification does not occur in the ocean. Lake depth is not the only factor that controls the occurrence of turnover events. In water close to the temperature of maximum density at 4 degrees C, the vertical distribution of total dissolved solids may override the influence of temperature on density. We use the term total dissolved solids instead of simply salinity in order to avoid the erroneous conclusion that salinity effects may only be important in saline lakes. To the contrary, lakes with deep water temperatures around 4 degrees C may be permanently stratified by tiny vertical gradients of calcium carbonate concentration. Rivers flowing into such lakes may either trigger or inhibit vertical mixing depending on their concentration of total dissolved solids relative to the concentration in the lake. The case of salinity-controlled vertical stratification, where the quotation marks are meant to remind us that even small concentrations of total dissolved solids may be needed, is particularly pronounced in eutrophic lakes. Such lakes have large nutrient inputs, often resulting from human activities such as agriculture. 
The accumulation of dissolved salts in the deep water from the sinking and decomposition of biomass or from redissolution of solids at the sediment surface often leads to a permanent dissolved solids-induced stratification, even if the lake is not very deep, and thus its total water volume is exposed to the wind. As a result, in some cases, the hypolimnion in a lake may become anoxic and populated with anaerobic microorganisms. Such conditions have become common in certain lakes like Lake Erie. In these lakes, one may expect organic compounds that are persistent under aerobic conditions, such as polychlorinated pesticides, may undergo reductive transformations, which is no good for polychlorinated pesticides. As several different factors can influence deep water mixing, simple prediction of such mixing is not possible. Instead, every lake must be taken as an individual case that must carefully be studied, especially if the deep water is around 4 degrees C. The only general statement we can make is that in lakes that have deep water temperatures distinctly above 4 degrees C, permanent stratification is very likely. Since water's thermal expansion coefficient rapidly grows above 4 degrees C, above this value, the temperature has a significant effect on water density, whether dissolved salts are present or not. The two deepest freshwater lakes on Earth, Lake Baikal at 1741 meter depth and Lake Tanganyika at 1471 meters, provides us with quite contrasting illustrations of mixing. In Lake Baikal, water temperature is close to the temperature of maximum density throughout the water column. Small density currents caused by water inflows at the inlets drive the vertical exchange in the lake. Water mixing is further enhanced by the fact that the temperature of maximum density decreases with pressure, leading to a very complex mixing process called cabling. In short, in spite of its total great depth, deep water in Lake Baikal is renewed at a typical rate of about 10 In contrast, water temperature in Lake Tanganyika is about 20 degrees at all depths. Small vertical temperature gradients in combination with chemical gradients lead to a permanent stratification of this lake into permanently anoxic deep water. To conclude, we mention a special phenomenon called the thermal bar, which was first described by F.A. Forel in Lake Geneva. A thermal bar develops in lakes that freeze over in winter or whose surface temperature drops below 4 degrees C. Since in the spring, the water warms up faster close to the shore than at the center, such lakes develop a horizontal temperature gradient at the water's surface that extends from the shore to the center of the lake, where the water may still be covered by ice. Somewhere on that line from the shore to the center of the lake, the surface temperature must be 4 degrees C, the temperature of maximum density. At this location, the water sinks to greater depths and thus produces a barrier, the thermal bar, that separates the shore water from the water in the middle of the lake. Due to the thermal bar, substances brought into lakes by rivers or sewers concentrate at the shore side of the bar. Thermal bars and their effect on pollutant concentrations have been studied extensively in the Great Laurentian Lakes. I wonder if that's also one of the driving forces in like Europa on interplanetary studies. The chemical compositions of lake water vary widely. For example, total dissolved salt contents can vary from 0.1 PSU to about 400 PSU. 
This variability largely arises from differences in the mineralogical composition of solids surrounding the lake. Moreover, the fact that some lakes are primarily fed by streams that quickly flow over the landscape without much to dissolve the surrounding rocks, while other lakes are filled by groundwater with extensive rock interactions, results in varying degrees of water equilibration with surrounding minerals. For example, lakes in geological areas dominated by granitic rocks have pH values as low as 4.5 or less. Whereas lakes surrounded by carbonate-containing rocks, such as calcite and dolomite, can have pHs near 8. Further, terminal salt lakes in volcanic areas can be highly alkaline with pH as high as 10. Ooh. Diurnal variation in the lake's surface water pH are also common. Daytime photosynthesis increases the pH with the consumption of protons, and nighttime respiration lowers the pH. Surface lake water usually contains dissolved oxygen at levels near saturation at 2 to 400 micromoles depending on the water's temperature and salt content. The oxygen comes from the atmosphere and is made in situ by photosynthetic plankton. Sometimes deep lake water can be anoxic. These conditions depend greatly on the time-varying mixing in lakes as well as the nutrient loadings that control the rate of organic matter production by algae and submerged plants. The dissolved organic carbon content of lake water varies from about 1 to 3 milligrams carbon per liter for oligotrophic lakes, or those with small nutrient loadings, while DOC values can be near 30 milligrams carbon per liter for nutrient-rich or eutrophic systems. The POC in lake water is generally much smaller by a factor of 10 than the DOC. This wide range of observed lake mixing and nutrient loading also has concomitant impacts on redox-sensitive elements like iron, manganese, nitrogen, and sulfur. For example, dissolved iron can be present at sub-micromolar levels, or Fe3 type, in oxic bottom waters in the winter and spring, and then at super-micromolar concentrations in Fe2 type when the deep water becomes anoxic in the summer and fall. Rivers. I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish it all tonight. This is a lot. Rivers are especially important for the global water cycle because they act as the major link between the continental aqueous system and the ocean. They bring most of the continental excess rain, precipitation minus evaporation, back to the ocean, carrying huge amounts of dissolved and suspended solids. Rivers also transport chemicals, sometimes carrying them over great distances. For example, after a fire destroyed a chemical storehouse in Zweischahal near Basel, Switzerland in 1986, great amounts of pesticides entered the Rhine River and were carried about 800 kilometers downstream to the North Sea. And we'll talk about that in Chapter 28. The largest river in the world in terms of discharge rate is the Amazon. On average, it brings 210 times 10 to the 3 cubic meters per second of water from the South American continent to the Atlantic Ocean, more than 17% of the total discharge of all rivers on Earth. The Amazon has a total length of 6,450 kilometers and drains an area of 6.9 times 10 to the 6 kilometers squared. The next up is Congo River with 4,400 kilometers, 
And while the ratio of discharge rates of the Amazon and the Congo is 5 to 1, the ratio of the drainage area is only 1 to 7, reflecting 1.7. Reflecting the difference in water flows of the two drainage areas in terms of precipitation, evaporation, infiltration, and surface runoff. An even more extreme example is given by the Nile, the longest river on Earth. The total length of the Nile is 6,650 kilometers, which slightly exceeds the length of the Amazon, and its drainage area is about half. However, its discharge rate is only about 2.8 times 10 to the third meter cube per second, which is 1.3% of the Amazon. In spite of their importance in terms of transport, rivers are negligible global reserves of water. On a local level, construction of dams for drinking water supply and irrigation makes rivers important for water storage especially in arid areas. On average, the mean residence time of water in rivers is about 10 days, so pollutant residence time or chemical memory is generally short. However, since river water and subsurface aquifers may exchange substantial water volumes as combined river and groundwater compartments may have significantly prolonged pollutant residence time, since groundwater flows are much slower than river flows. For example, Schwarzenbach et al. 1983 reports the rapid movement of chlorinated solvents from river water into adjacent groundwater, extending the resident time by weeks of the solvent tetrachloroethylene, or PCE. Another mechanism that increases residence time in the river compartment involves chemical exchanges with the river sediments. When rivers are polluted by inputs of hydrophobic chemicals like PCBs, much of the input partitions to particles and accumulates and accumulates in the sediments. After the pollutant input has been flushed from the river, the sediments slowly return the chemicals back to the river water, back to fusion. Therefore, as observed in the Hudson River, an initial input of PCBs may leave its traces in the flowing water for a long time afterward. Mixing in river occurs during turbulent diffusion and dispersion. Turbulent diffusion is a random process triggered by the roughness of the riverbed. Turbulent kinetic energy is introduced into the flowing water, introducing, inducing fast turbulent mixing in all directions, vertically, laterally, and longitudinally. The process of diffusion ensues as flow varies across the cross-section of the riverbed, generally being slower and fast towards the riverbank and faster in the middle. <sighs> PCBs are just so frustrating. Sorry, still, we're working on a PCB project at work and I'm very frustrated because the employee in charge of that PCB project seems to have no concept of how to set up a plan, how to test for anything, how to develop disposal operations. It's extremely frustrating. As with lakes, rivers have diverse chemical compositions that depend on the geological system through which they flow. Average composition values on a global scale are useful to estimate the amount of major ions like sodium and calcium delivered to the ocean, but the concentrations in single rivers differ widely from these averages. So we talk a lot about carbon and there's a lot about turbulence. And we talk about sediment beds, which is a matrix consisting of solids and water-filled pore spaces, which are linked to overlaying waters by various processes, such as particle settling, molecular diffusion between pore water and open water, resuspension, and bioturbulation. And these solids may remove chemicals from the overlaying water column, 
particularly compounds that sorb strongly to particles. So sediment beds provide a potential continued source of those chemicals back into the water body. A large part of suspended particles in surface water are derived from land, such as clay, silt, and sand. In situ production of organic particles, called marine snow in the ocean, fecal pellet formation and coagulation adds to the flux of particulate matter through the water column. In the deep waters of the ocean, concentrations of suspended solids are in a lot of ranges. I'm not going to read those to you. Uh, so the weight fraction of organic carbon in suspended solids, or fraction organic carbon, lies between 2 and 20%. This fraction decreases by about a factor of 10 once the solids are buried in the sediment bed. The settling velocity of suspended solids depends on size, form, and density of particles, or their aggregates, and the viscosity of the water, which depends on temperature. So this is Navier-Stokes, for those of us keeping track of my failed fluid mechanics class. Um, some particles, like fecal pellets, have settling rates over 1,000 meters per day. Whoa. Maybe because they're so fatty? Settling tends to be faster closer to shore than further offshore, and also faster in deep ocean than at the surface. Since particles that reach the deep sea have had their organic contents degraded and have larger excess densities, in addition compared to more turbulent waters close to the surface, the absence of turbulence favors no the net downward movement of these particles. A similar trend is observed in lakes, although settling rates are generally much smaller than in the ocean. An exception are the rather fast settling of particles after resuspension events due to heavy winds or resulting from in situ flocculation of particles in glacier fed lakes. The porosity of sediments as well as of soils and subsurface solids is defined as a fraction of the total volume consisting of fluid filled pore space. Here we extend this definition to media that consist of all three phases gas, liquid, and solid. Typical porosities of terrestrial media lie between 10 and 60%. Freshwater sediments are very loosely packed and have a porosity of about 90%, with the pore space entirely water-filled. This high porosity is largely due to low salt contents, as the lack of salt allows for more repulsion among the charged surfaces of particles. In contrast, typical marine sediments contain 40-90% to 90 water by volume. However, even at high salinity and at a depth of several hundred meters below the seafloor, where the weight of the overlying sediments has squeezed water out, Pore water may still occupy more than 40% of the volume. Deep ocean sediments are hundreds of meters thick, and their total pore water volume exceeds the groundwater reservoir below the continents. However, most of the pore water is basically trapped, so that the exchange of the overlying ocean water is limited to the near-surface sediment layer. This large volume of pore water, therefore, does not have the same importance as groundwater in the global cycling of organic pollutants. In lakes, where sediment erosion is unlikely, the sediment can act as an archive of past conditions, and so sediment cores can reveal the history of chemical pollution. In rivers, sediment accumulation is usually transitory. Does anyone remember if alcohol is soluble? I mean, it is in water, but I never remember if alcohol is neutral or chemically charged. I think it's neutral, right? I don't remember.
which is why I'm reading this book, because I can't remember a lot of stuff. It used to be very, very clear to me. So, mass exchange between sediments and open water occurs via various processes, such as molecular diffusion between the pore water and the open water, particle settling or resuspension and bioturbation of the sediment bed. Once particles become part of the sediment, transformations, e.g. organic matter decomposition and solid water equilibration, for example, mineral dissolution, are intensified. Furthermore, since the contact time between the solids and their surrounding pore water is typically much greater in the sediment column than in the overlaying water column, pore water concentrations of chemicals carried to the bed on particles may become higher than corresponding concentrations in the water column. Such chemicals can then move back into the overlying water column via back diffusion. Further, this buildup of contaminant chemical activity in the bed implies that benthic organisms may experience greater exposure and bioaccumulation of such organic chemicals. Other important processes of mass exchange between sediment and the overlying water column include settling or resuspension of particles that carry absorbed organic chemicals. Resuspension mainly occurs via high velocities in rivers or near the shore of oceans and lakes. However, biological processes can also cause resuspension. For example, organisms living at sediment surface can stir up sedimentary particles by searching for food. This process, by which the activities of benthic fauna move sediment solids and pore water, is generally called bioturbation. Well, duh. I feel like they're trying very hard to make this sound scientific, but... It's not. <laughs> um, the mineralogical composition of oceanic sediments is highly dependent on their location. We know that some oceanic regions are rich in opaline silica, SiO2. So opal is really interesting. It's, it's frozen water in stone, which I didn't realize. So if you release the pressure of the stone, you can actually get water back out of it. Uh, I find that kind of fascinating. Um, so it's, it's crystallized O2, CO2, H2O, sorry. Um, so much of the Atlantic, Southern Pacific, and Indian Oceans have such calcareous deposits, and still other regions are rich in clay materials from land weathering. So organic carbon is found closer to shores for obvious reasons. So typical coastal sediments have a weight fraction organic carbon of about 1%, but this ranges from as low as 0.1 and up to 10%. The pH of oceanic sediment pore waters varies from 6 to 9 for coastal sites and is generally between pH 6 and 8 in ocean deposits, open ocean deposits. Many sites in both coastal and open oceans have pore water near the sediment bedwater interface that is oxic, but many other locations do not have dissolved O2 in the sediment bed. Anoxic conditions occur in sediments where the accumulation of organic matter is so great that aerobic organisms do not have enough O2 available to oxidize this food supply. As a consequence, anaerobic microorganisms take over using electron acceptors like sulfate to process the organic matter. At many locations, the sediments become so depleted in inorganic electron acceptors that methanogenesis, the production of methane, occurs. At these sites, the sediment is rich in reduced chemicals like ferrous iron and hydrogen sulfide, and transformations such as reductive dechlorinations requiring a supply of electrons can occur. I think that's what I wanted to try and make in my AFFF pond. 
um, I wanted to kind of create an anaerobic bioreactor. It may not smell great at certain times of the year, but it would be very effective, maybe. The composition of lake sediments also widely varies. Generally, the solids' mineralogies closely correspond to geological deposits located nearby. The organic carbon content in lake sediments has been reported to vary from 0.1 to 10% by weight. Typically, the organic matter's chemical composition is similar to that of land plants, e.g. lignin-derived macromolecule material. In this section, we characterize the environmental land compartment. This compartment consists of several layers. First, we recognize an uppermost soil layer, or pedosphere. The soil and the layer below it are commonly filled with air and water, and together these layers are called the unsaturated zone. Next, a narrow transitional layer called the capillary fringe exists, in which water is pulled up by surface tension. Finally, one which reaches a saturated zone in which the pore spaces are entirely filled with groundwater. We focus most of our discussion on the upper soil zone and the groundwater that flows in the saturated zone. These two subcompartments are important for problems concerning the fate of organic chemicals in the environment as soil is heavily used in agriculture and the groundwater below the water table is important to the water supply. So I did read a pretty interesting rebuttal to this. Um, so we're going through the very traditional schematics of soil zone horizons, but soil itself is not like that. <laughs> so soil is a much more dynamic medium than I think we have represented here. And I'm going to start our soil biochemistry and soil biogeochemistry review as soon as I can get through this guy. But essentially, the subcompartmentalization of soil is not exactly what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to skip this for now. And we, we can talk about the water. So the water portion of this is actually very, um, is more useful than the soil horizons. Uh, because the water behaves exactly like what we just described. The groundwater to a capillary fringe, to an unsaturated or a vado zone, to a soil zone. Um, and we've got a nice water table represented here. But the idea that the pedosphere evolves to have a layered nature with uh, plant growth being the most governing organic matter contribution, yes, that is true, okay. But we have seen humic substances penetrating multiple kilometers down into the soil layers, and we've even seen biological activity four or five kilometers below the surface, which is just crazy. So soil organic matter is similar to components of vascular plants, it has like lignin, but soil organic matter also includes decomposition products like humic substances. Um, and we'll go through those in chapter 13. So in brief, organic matter contains a complex mix of aromatic and aliphatic carbon. The oxygen functionalities of SOM include carboxylic acids, phenols, and aliphatic alcohols. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur-containing functional groups are rarely present. The end result is an upper layer of soil that is organic-rich and often appears dark in color. I'm going to skip all this because I don't think that's how it is. Or at least we're going to go into a greater depth in soil biogeochemistry. Uh, so, as organic matter is degraded, organic acids are formed, and these are called humic and fulvic acids. 
They tend to refer to their solubilities in water as a function of pH. Fulvic acids tend to be smaller than humic acids and somewhat richer in oxygen functionalities. They bear structures that derive from the same organisms and decomposition processes as their parent material. After decomposition and leaching, the fraction of organic compounds drops to an average value of 0.7% for the layer between 0.3 and 2 meter depths. The fulvic and humic acids leach metals like iron out of the uppermost soil minerals. Subsequently, when rainfall causes water to flow downward into the soil, these organic acids and their associated metals are carried deeper into the soil. The result is a layer of metal-depleted minerals, A, horizon, overlaying a deeper layer in which the metals have been reprecipitated, often leading to a rusty coloring, or the B horizon. Like the uppermost soil layer, these deeper horizons typically have air-filled spaces and water coatings on the mineral surfaces. However, unlike the soil near the ground surface, these deeper layers often have lower organic carbon contents with a fraction of organic carbon of only about 0.1 to 0.5% weight. At still greater depths, the mineral material remains largely unaltered by the soil forming processes acting close to the ground surface. This deeper zone chiefly reflects the original minerals that were deposited at the location and is called the sea horizon. The top of the sea horizon, therefore, is the top of the lithosphere, the rocky outer layer of the earth. The lithosphere acts as a large reservoir that plays a vital role for geochemical cycles, especially carbon dioxide, on the timescale of hundreds of millions of years. The lithosphere may become relevant for anthropogenic organic compounds if methods like deep well injection, fracking for oil and gas minerals, and geothermal heat exploitation become widespread. Such activities will artificially connect fluids trapped in the lithosphere to those on the Earth's surface. Oh boy. We found yet another matrix to pass our poisons through. A key outcome of soil formation is that new materials, both inorganic and organic, are formed from the parent minerals and ecosystem-derived organic matter. These materials become part of the soil's overall composition. Inorganic minerals in soils include oxyhydroxides like ferrohydrite, goldthite, gibbsite, aluminosilicates like kaolinite, and carbonates like calcite. The mineral mixture in any soil depends, of course, on the kinds of rocks in the area. For example, in New England, the parent rocks are igneous granites, and these lead to the release of quartz, biotite mica, and feldspars. In contrast, in the Midwestern United States, the surface rocks are metamorphic carbonates. When these materials weather, they release clay detritus co-deposited with the original sediment and carbon fines, carbonite, carbonate fines. These solids have varying surface properties, including specific surface solids and reactive moieties that can cause surface charging. These inorganic solids and the aggregates they form have a range of pores in them referred to as micropores mesopores, and macropores, which are greater than 50 nanometers in diameter. The term nanopores is often used to mean the sum of micropores plus mesopores. We need to understand the properties of minerals and soils in order to predict whether chemicals adsorb or react via hydrolysis, redox process, or photochemical transformations on their surfaces. Porosity is another important property of soil since the volume fraction that's filled with fluids affects the mobility and reactivity of chemicals underground. Batjes of 1996 found the bulk densities of soil, or the mass of solids divided by the sum of volumes of air plus water plus solids, 
varies from about 1.26 to 1.67 grams per cubic meter for a wide range of soil types. Assuming a mineral density of 2.6 grams per cubic meter, this range of bulk densities suggests soil porosities are typically 40 to 50%. Therefore, about half of the total soil volume is filled with solids and the other half is filled with soil, air, and water. For comparison, coarse materials like sands and gravels can have porosities that are significantly less. In general, water flows slowly through the voids below the ground surface. And I'm not going to do that because we find out that the water is typically not moving downward very fast, and that's pretty self-evident. Since soils lay directly beneath the atmosphere, their pore space is filled with water, and also often with an air-like mix of gases, including O2. When such gases are present, the soil system is considered aerobic. However, some soils are regularly waterlogged, as occurred in peatlands and wetlands. In this case, O2 in the soil may be absent as its use by microorganisms exceeds its replacement from overlying air. The soil system void of O2 is said to be anaerobic. If a platinum electrode is used to assess the electron availability in waterlogged soil systems, the electrode potential, or EH, would likely be near or below zero millivolts. In such a reducing environment, minerals containing redox-sensitive metals like iron would not include iron-3 in solids like gothite, but rather iron-2 solids like siderite and pyrite. Conversely, in aerobic systems, oxygen can act as an electron sink, creating an oxidizing environment. So there's some really cool soil systems like iron-rich, so, oh man, I don't even know how to describe it. It's pretty neat. So EH is related to electron availability. The negative values imply a high electron availability. And pH is related to proton availability, where low values imply high protein, proton availability. And the soils rich in iron often exhibit a pH of less than 5. Average pH values of 6.4 were good for agricultural soils and 5.4 for forest soils around the world. How interesting. So we talked a little bit about groundwater. So um, we've talked a lot about it already. But deep groundwater systems have residence times between 1,000 and 10,000 years. Wow. So these are ice age types waters um, that take hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. So the use of deep water systems for irrigation is similar to the exploitation of non-renewable resources. Wow. So we can have a diverse amount of flow. So it can go as slow as about 0.01 centimeters per day to something like 30 centimeters per day. And this can carry organic chemicals and polluted subsurface sites and we can track decades of travel time. Um, so examples of pollutant transport in aquifers measuring PCE, dichlorobenzene, nonalphenol, estradiol. Um, these are all great examples. Uh, in this case, measuring artificial sweeteners. Can you imagine artificial sweeteners are now moving through the stone because humans like to have sweet coffee? It's amazing. So this is all based off of Darcy's Law, which states that the velocity of the water is directly proportional to the hydraulic conductivity and head gradient and inversely related to porosity. Hydraulic conductivities vary widely, 
depending on the tightness of the material through which the water is flowing. For example, conductivity through gravel is much greater than through sand, which is in turn much higher than through metamorphic materials like sandstones and shale. So transport is seldom turbulent because of the small size of the pores. Therefore, molecular diffusion and dispersion along the flow are the main producers of randomness in the mass flux of chemical compounds. Heterogeneities exist on all spatial scales from the micropores to the macrostructure of the aquifer. Therefore, the description of transport in porous media strongly depends on the scale of interest. Chemical composition really depends on where it comes from. So limestone calcium carbonate was 3.6 micromolar calcium versus a volcanic rock of 0.16 micromolar. They're all very diverse. Bio bicarbonate concentrations range in a really big amounts. So they give a nice table here to kind of show the diversity, but it really comes from the surrounding rocks, right? and how much time it spends underground. So the more contact time it has with its parent rock, then the more minerals will be solubilized um, and the pH can increase. So surface waters were somewhere around six to uh, long range aquifers somewhere around nine. Occasionally you get some groundwater that's more acidic than expected um, and this may be due to a buildup of CO2 in the water from microbial oxidation of organic compounds, um, or not. <laughs> got a, we got a lot of choices here. So biota, the global biota is everything living, living organisms, animals, plants, fungi, protists, bacteria, archaea. We typically divide that into oceanic and terrestrial portions. But the total mass of marine biota is much smaller than the mass of biota on land, particularly for photosynthetic organisms. But interestingly, the total net primary production on land and in water is nearly equal, which is largely due to the rapid turnover of most marine primary producers, which only takes days as compared to terrestrial primary producers, which can take a year to decades. Since the ocean is about three times larger than the land in terms of surface area, the net primary productivity per unit area on land is about three times greater than in the ocean. Another key difference is that heterotrophic microorganisms in, in the ocean have a biomass that's comparable to the primary producer biomass, while in the terrestrial system, the microbial mass contribution is proportionally much less. Finally, acoustic observations and ecological modeling suggest that fish contribute most of the biomass in the ocean, fair, while animals on land contribute about 1,000 1, times less mass than primary producers. Yeah, I feel like we get that. <laughs> We're trying very hard to sound scientific about this, but it's kind of like, yep, yep, duh. <laughs> Importantly, these networks of organisms can act to accumulate organic chemicals from their surroundings, thereby putting their food webs, including humans, at risk of toxic exposure. The topic of bioaccumulation will be further examined as a function of chemical and organism properties in Chapter 16, and another role of the biota with respect to organic chemicals involves their potential to transform such organic substrates. And we will talk about that in Chapter 26. So explain the relation between compartment and system. So compartment is spatially derived, whereas system can be anything that interacts with each other. 
So a system is like time-based and spatially based, and a compartment is spatially unique. Can a system consist of several compartments? Yes. So if we're talking about the, um, what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about the benzene transport in liquid water. So if we're talking about transportation system, um, then that system would not be spatially defined because the benzene is going to be traveling through many, many different spaces. Uh, but it will be several compartments will make up its path. And can a compartment consist of several systems? Yes. So um, one spatial area can have pore water, it can have bieta, it can have um, metabolic systems. Uh, all of that can be interacting with each other within the compartment and contributing to its overall chemical makeup. On one hand, density of matter, solid liquid ga gas, decreases with increasing temperature, disregarding a few exceptions like water temperature between 0 and 4 degrees C. On the other hand, the in-situ temperature in the troposphere actually decreases with altitude. Does this mean that air density increases with altitude? That is, the air column is physically unstable? Is there a way out of the dilemma? Uh, well, no. I guess I don't really understand the question because the only reason that water density changes is because of the salinity constant, is because of its salinity concentration. And it's compressible. Um, it's not compressible, sorry. And it's not compressible. So air is compressible and it's completely mixed, right? So how would you, how would air density increase with altitude? the temperature was decreasing. Is the column physically unstable? Well, I guess it could, but it's just gonna move, right? Um, so the air column could be physically unstable and if it did increase its density, uh, you know, it could turn over just like in water. But it wouldn't really, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's a good question. I take back what I said at the beginning. So we think about this. Air moving through column, it gets lighter. It gets more and more diffuse. Um, so even though it's cold, there's less pressure holding it together, which means that it's able to, um, which means there's less interaction according to the ideal gas law, which means there's less pressure which means it will not get more dense. So the temperature might decrease, but because air is compressible um, and it's subject to molecular interactions by ideal gas, um, as pressure decreases, then the density wouldn't really matter. The volume stays the same, the pressure decreases. It's not a thermal governing thing, and it's not determined by salinity, which would be a pressure value that water has to deal with because it is incompressible. That was a garbage answer, but I'm going to go with it. Why is the direction of global wind field mostly directed along the east-west axis and not along the north-south? 
because it runs into thermal changes. So you have the stratification of winds and all the currents because you have different temperature gradients all contributing to countercurrents or, or clockwise currents. And they push each other, right? So you have constant like dipping and flowing and you can't move straight from the cold air to cold air because that's not a differential but you can move along the walls of warm air and cold air and gradually mix and then move from point to point. Mixing in the atmosphere between the northern and southern hemisphere is slower than mixing within the hemisphere. Why? Because it's the equator, so there's less of a thermal gradient. Once you get to the same temperature, there's... How do you mix, right? You don't go anywhere. You just stay there. Explain the difference between primary and secondary aerosols. Primary aerosols get up there from the Earth's surface. Secondary aerosols are made there and then come back down to the Earth's surface. Why is the concentration of diatomic nitrogen and two on a molecule per cubic meter basis different in the troposphere and the stratosphere, assuming the substance makes up 78% of the mass in both places? Because temperature. So I have to remind myself, PV equals NRT. Um, so as temperature increases, pressure volume interaction would increase, so you'd have more, more moles of whatever. So the higher temperature would have more moles of whatever interacting with each other, so you would have greater amounts of NRT. And the lower temperatures would be result in less interactions molecule to molecule resulting in less concentrations of diatomic nitrogen. How many molecules per cubic centimeters would one typically find in an air sample taken at sea level in a rural area without much traffic? I'm not going to do math tonight because I don't care. Um, I'm also not going to do graphs tonight because I don't care. We've got some good questions about thermal bar. Oh, difference between evaporation and evapotranspiration. One is breathing through plants and one is a straight physical mechanism between water and air. Oh, we can talk something about that. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. I'm not going to answer any of that. All done.